This is According to Callus, and I am standing up in McKinney. Today is going to be uh, January the 11th, episode 330, and it's a Wednesday. So as is my usual habit, we're going to review a book. Now, unfortunately, I have not yet completed the book that I planned on doing this week uh, because life just keeps getting in the way. That and uh, the novels that I started reading have not yet completed. <laughs> it started out as one and it ended up being a five-part series. And of the 1,200-some-odd pages, I'm only 900 in. So hopefully we'll get this stuff caught up. Now, I don't recall if I've ever done this before or not. So what I want to do is I want to dig out a book that I've read several years ago. And... The title on the book is Ex America, and it's the 50th anniversary of the People's Pottage. Now, what does that mean to you? Well, for most of us, we have no idea who this author is. So first, I'm going to tell you, uh, I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to read the jacket cover. Um, there is a little bit, uh, there's a little pamphlet, if you will. On the author, I'll read that as well. But his name is Garrett Garrett. Okay? So, for 50 years, Garrett Garrett's The People's Pottage has stood as the seminal works outlining the intellectual debate that raged over FDR's ambitious restructuring of the American body politic. Garrett Garrett was the editorial writer for the Saturday Evening Post and was the country's most eloquent and vehement opponents of the Roosevelt administrative's post-depression policies, policies that, in Garrett's view, endangered the very fabric of the American Republic. And three monographs that make up the ex-America are presented in this hardcover, the 50th anniversary edition, that even includes a new forward by the Garrett historian Bruce Ramsey. Okay, so now there's a number of other books on politics and economics from Caxton Press, uh, Salvos Against the New Deal by Garrett Garrett, Defend America First, also by Garrett Garrett, and wouldn't you know it, they have Anthem by none other than Ayn Rand, What Social Classes Owe Each Other by William Graham Sumner, The Art of Contrary Thinking by Humphrey B. Neal, and The Nature of Man and Government by Robert Lafourve. And I probably pronounced that wrong. So they've taken three, I guess, smaller essays, or not, I guess the essays themselves are fairly long, but they've put them together and they are the revolution was ex America and rise of empire. And they were subject or they were first printed as separate monographs by the Caxton printers. And they were written in that order, but for different times. So, to me, I read through this, and what's appalling to me is, up until, honestly, about 10 years ago, I had never known the amount of pushback and reluctance and desire to avoid the structures of the New Deal, the 
um, light socialism that Roosevelt was pushing upon us. Now, we had all heard the story back when I was in grade school and I guess middle school is uh, switch in time, save nine. For those of you that don't know what that is, is the Supreme Court was striking down as unconstitutional a good number of these measures that the Congress with Roosevelt were enacting in direct violation of the restrictions on the federal government. They were expanding power far beyond what was ever acceptable. And the Supreme Court was doing their job. And they were threatened, conjoled, and eventually somebody switched. And they appointed a few more people. And lo and behold, they magically found a way that all these things became constitutional. Kind of sounds like something that Justice Roberts might have done. As they say, nothing new is under the sun. So let me go in and read this little pamphlet uh, by Jeffrey Tucker. Now, what's interesting to me is I purchased this book from the Ludwig von Mises Institute, found at Mises.org, which would be the great libertarian think tank that resides in uh, Alabama, I believe. So, Garrett Garrett was alive from 1878 to 1954. He's a case study in a a forgotten genius, about whom Ludwig von Mises said, his keen penetration, his forceful, direct language are unsurpassed by any author. Mises was speaking of his book, The People's Pottage, which came out in 1953, which is a collection of the three powerful essays that linked the failures on welfare and warfare states. But there is even more to Garrett. Both his nonfiction and novels display a rare talent. His entire overture offers a sparkling vision of peace under free markets, whereas many intellectuals on the right and left regard peaceful bourgeoisie society as something of a bore. With the middle class amassing wealth and spending it on fripperies, Garrett saw peace and freedom as an essential precondition for the real drama of human life that revolves around creation, association, risk, love, courage, and the full range of human experience that transforms society in spectacular ways. Now, he was born in Panna, Illinois. His formal education was slight, but independent study took him through all the classics, as shown by the remarkable erudication of uh, erudiation. <laughs> well, I guess I should be glad that I can read and not pronounce things. Uh, his influence in economics came primarily through a book by the American academic Simon Newcomb, Principles of Economic Economy, in 1886. Newcomb was an advocate for the gold standard in laissez-faire, an early convert to the marginalist revolution. So Garrett's Austrianism is present, but in a backdoor way, through William Jane Stanley Jevons, an American hard money school that was actively writing in the late 19th century. At the age of 20, he left for Chicago to work as a reporter for the Cleveland Recorder. And then later covered politics in Washington, D.C., writing reports on administration of William McKinley for the Washington Times. In 1900, he went to New York and joined the staff of the New York Sun as a financial writer. Then he moved to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal until he joined the New York Evening Post in 1909. In that time, business reporting consisted mostly of reporting pieces and dry facts. Garrett, in contrast, wrote with the drama on personalities and events, infusing the activity of commerce with a fire and passion that later made his fiction so enormously popular. 
He began to write fiction in the early 1920s. The Driver, Cinder Buggy, and Satan's Bushels are all novels that tell thrilling stories about American history with a a complex plot and character development in which the glorious drama of commercial life plays the central role. These novels chronicle dramatic social and economic transformations in the context of a fierce struggle and great risk of all within the framework of peace. He wrote another novel about the failure of socialistic experiment, The Harangue. The trees said to the bramble, come rain over us, in 1926. It shows that socialism is not economically viable and collapses in its of his own intercontradictions. He also foresaw that once the socialists discovered this, they would turn to extolling the virtues of poverty and urge the worship of Mother Earth, and finally turn on reason itself. Garrett's knowledge of economic forces was so profound that he wrote the first full and widely circulated explanation of the 1929 stock market crash, The Bubble That Broke the World, printed in 1932, placed the blame on the overextension of credit made possible by the Federal Reserve. This created, said Garrett, a false prosperity that led to a correction. This book alone is proof that his journalism continued through the Depression and the war, always with a decidedly and even radically libertarian cast. Let me pause for a second here. I know there's some of you out here, oh, he's talking about a libertarian. Keep your shirt on. Following this process or following the success, Garrett began as a featured contributor to America's most successful periodical, the Saturday Evening Post. But his contributions were not limited to this. He also wrote for Collier's, Everybody's Magazine, and The New Republic. His topics usually centered on financial matters. With a change of editorial direction in the Post in 1942, Garrett left and two years later founded the journal called American Affairs. This journal by itself is a remarkable accomplishment. In a time of all-around planning and war, Garrett managed to produce a free market publication that took on the labor unions, price controls, inflation, war planning, international agencies, centralization of power, war propaganda, and the fight for liberty of the individual in issue after issue. In 1953, his masterpiece of nonfiction writing appeared, The People's Pottage. This collection was of the three essays that I listed earlier, The Revolutionary Was, that shows the New Deal transferred American transformed American society to the extent that it was foolhardy to listen to American politicians and their warnings of the dangers from the outside. Murray Rothbard, yes, another libertarian guy, writes in The Betrayal of the American Right that this was one of the most sparkling and influential attacks on the New Deal. The second essay is Ex-America, a shocking look back at the American that was and what it had become. And the third essay is The Rise of Empire. Garrett spells out the conditions and the signal move from a republic to an empire including the dominance of the executive, the rise of the military mind, a complex of vaunting and fear, the subjugation of domestic concerns to foreign ones, and the use of satellite uh, and a system of satellite nations. The list is an eerie one today and essentially spells out what drives America policy in the post-Cold War era. With the fear of communism out of the way, we should be more positioned than ever to heed his warnings. And one of his last works, A Wonderful History of the Ford Motor Company, called The Wild Wheel, that should be read by all American school kids. To Garrett, there is no heroism, heroism in statism, only creativity and production. No folly greater than overthrowing the institutions that make creativity and economic progress 
possible. He was not a great writer of, not just a great white writer of fiction, not just a courageous opponent to the planning state war. He was a prophet in, of the fate of America under government control and a brilliant intellectual force of the 20th century, a wise and eloquent spokesman for freedom itself. You know, once again, that came from the uh, Ludwig von Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. So I thought what I would do here is I would just kind of read the opening excerpt or first paragraph or two of The Revolution Was, which was written in 1938. The reason being, and when I read this, like I said, it was about eight or 10 years ago, I was shocked at how many things he said would happen that clearly happened. I was surprised that he could see in the midst of what was, you know, the great society. Well, I guess a previous world war two and the, uh, events surrounding that coming out of the depression and the new deal. He was able to actively and correctly predict all the different things that would happen. And again, going back to the initial thought, there is very little education of the people that pushed back, of the people that were anti-New Deal, other than they are painted as curmudgeons and you know whatever else in the New Deal worked. And I can't tell you the number of times that I heard that, well, Roosevelt shortened the Depression. World War II got us out of the Depression. And all of these are nonsensical. They, how could they have? How could a guy spending more money and doing all these different things by force of arms, essentially, improve anything or correct a problem? Much less, how could getting involved in a war and losing a half a million people in four or five years, and that's just the ones that were recorded, make things better? Now, yes, it might be better for a few individuals. And as a society, I just don't understand how that's a net positive. Now, there are lots of people that lived through that or came after that that actually think it was a positive thing. But if we look at the world we live in today, would any of the stuff, as far as government overreach and control, exist if they were allowed to get, if they would not have been allowed to get away with it back then? So. I, I don't know. I I, I want to say that I'm really sad that we don't do a better job of educating our kids that there was another option, that there could have been other things done back after 1929. I mean, and we try and paint Hoover as this do-nothing and the guy that was uber-free market, and he was nothing of the sort. They, they all thought that they had to do something. And they were going to use the force of arm under the government to get things done, regardless the consequences, regardless any bad effects. They just didn't care. They wanted to be seen doing something. Once again, the more things change, the more they st- uh, stay the same, right? I mean, we see this time and time again, or as Solomon critiques, there's nothing new under the sun. All right. There are those who think they're holding the pass against a revolution that may be coming up the road. But they are gazing in the wrong direction. The revolution is behind them. It went by in the night of depression, singing songs to freedom. There are those who have never ceased to say very earnestly, something is going to happen to the American form of government if we don't watch out. 
These were innocent disarmers. Their trust was in the words. They had forgotten their Aristotle. More than 2,000 years ago, he wrote, What can happen within the form? When one thing takes the place of another, so that ancient laws will remain, while the power will be in the hands of those that brought the revolution in the state. Again, we see this all the time. How, how can we not, but just observe, the thing is, is, I wouldn't even know this book existed if it wasn't for an episode of Tom Woods referencing it in passing. To, to it was just to me, this stuff is shocking. That eighty years ago, we had or actually closer to a hundred years ago, we had guys saying, "Don't do this. This is what's going to happen," and they were poo-pooed, dismissed, and now they're memory hold. Most of the, most people have never ever heard of this. Or this argument, and we wonder why they continue on down the road to socialism, the road to serfdom, if you will. And someone please tell me out there that you've heard that term before. (laughs) All right. Worse, outwitted, were those trying who kept trying to make sense of the New Deal from the point of view of all that was implicit in the American scheme. Charging it, therefore, with contradiction, fallacy, economic ignorance, and general incompetence to govern. But it could not have been thus embarrassed, and all that line was wasted, because, in the first place, it never intended to make that kind of sense. And secondly, it took off from nothing that was implicit in the American scheme. It took off from the revolutionary base. The design was European, regarded from the point of view of a revolutionary technique, and made perfect sense. Its meaning was revolutionary. It had no other. For what it meant to do was from the beginning consistent in principle, resourceful and intelligent, masterly in workmanship, and it made not one mistake. The test came in the first 100 days. So once again, this is a guy that's pointing out (laughs) these guys who did this knew exactly what they were doing. And they did a good job of it. Unfortunately for us, they pulled it off. Now I'm going to go to the end. His conclusion. So it was that a revolution took place within the form. Like the hagfish, the New Deal entered the old form and devoured its meaning form within. The revolutionaries were inside. The defenders were outside. A government that had been supported by the people and so controlled by the people became one that supported the people, so controlled them. Much of it is irreversible. That is true because the habits of dependence are much easier to form than to break. Once the government on the ground of public policy has assumed the responsibility to provide people with buying power, When they are in want of it, or when they are unable to provide for themselves enough of it, according to a minimum proclaimed by the government, it will never be the same again. All of this is said by one who believes that the people have an absolute right to any form of government they like, even to an American welfare state. With the status in place of freedom, this is what they want. The first of all objections to the New Deal is neither political nor economic. It is moral. Revolution by scientific technique is above morality. It makes no distinction between means that are legal and means that are illegal. There was a legal and honest way to bring about revolution. 
even to tear up the Constitution, abolish it, and write a new one in its place. Its own words and promises meant as little to the New Deal as its oath to support the Constitution. In a letter to the member of the President of the House Ways and Means Committee urging a new law he wanted, the President said, I hope your committee will not permit doubt as to the constitutionality, however reasonable to block the suggested legislation. Its cruel and cynical suspicion of any motive but its own was a reflection of something it knew about itself. Its voice was the voice of righteousness. Its methods, therefore, were dishonest than the simple ways of corruption. When we see a lot of framed timers, different portions of which we know have gotten out of different times and places by different workmen. And when we see these timbers joined together and see that they exactly make the frame of a house or a mill, all the tendons and mortisons exactly fitting and all the lengths and proportions of the different pieces exactly adapted to their respective places and not a piece too many or too few in such a case when we find it impossible not to believe that all understood from one another from the beginning that it all worked upon a common plan or draft drawn up before the first blow was struck. Abraham Lincoln, deducing from objective evidence the blueprint of a political plot to save the institution of slavery. So, of course, we all know I'm not a huge fan of Abe Lincoln, but he did get a few things right. Unfortunately, he fell victim to the same thing that he sought to impose on everybody else, violence. Okay, we're going to go on to the second one, Ex-America. The winds that blow are billions away, return burdened with themes of scorn and dispraise. There is a little brat wind to keep saying, but you are absurd. You Americans, like the rich, fat boy in the big house who is tolerated while he spends his money at the drugstore and then gets chased home with mud on his clothes. He is bewildered and hurt, and yet he wants so much to be liked that he does it again the next day. But this is the parable, and you are probably too stupid to get it. If you do, you won't believe it, and so no harm is done. You will come again tomorrow. Another wind says, You worship success, you Americans. You have thereby ruined all of your spiritual and moral values, such as they were. Your controlling idea is Babylon for the masses. Since success is your idol, you are unable to understand the souls of other people or that they have souls. You are unable to comprehend the spiritual content of communism and are deluded to think you can shout it out of the world. How shall one answer insulting winds? You do not assert your position of spiritual values, but as for the success, we may be sure if it seems to be acclaimed here more than anywhere else, it is only because it is magnificent here in the multiples of satisfactions of common life in a manner that is the envy of the whole world, having lift the most fabulous success story in the history of the human race, we are rich, so rich that the next richest country is, by comparison, poor. In a world where one-third of humanity barely subsists at the poverty level, this is a fact that cannot be forgiven. Yet one may only be permitted to suggest that its magnitude is not only a unique fact about American wealth. I'm going to stop there. We're going to go to the conclusion. 
Well, in fact, there's, I forgot, this one doesn't actually have a conclusion. It uh, has seven pieces to it. So what I'm going to do is go to the uh, last page or so here. Hmm. Ask them, let it be a banker, a merchant, an industrialist. Ask them, how much depression and unemployment are you willing to face as the price of deflation? The answer will be, it is not deflation we are talking about. You are, we are saying the inflation must stop. You are proposing then to let all past inflation stand and to stabilize at the very top of the greatest inflationary boom that has ever occurred in this country. The answer will be, it is better to gradually absorb the consequences of past inflation than to have deflation. Say to them, by your own definitions, inflation has a kind of momentum. It feeds on itself and it's self-accelerating. Therefore, to stop it, it suddenly may cause a depression and unemployment. Because of the expectation of continuously rising prices, you substitute all at once the notion of static or falling prices. They will say that was once true, but now we have a possible now it is possible to stop inflation without having to face deflation, falling prices, reaction, or unemployment. Why is that not true in the first time of economic history? They will respond because government has learned how to intervene and keep the economy in a state of equilibrium. There is your answer. The fatal answer latent in the nation's mind. The government will intervene. The government will be responsible. What are these new responsibilities of the government? The government now undertakes, one, to keep an ever-expanding economy in a state of equilibrium, the perpetual boom without mishap. Two, to maintain full employment in any case. Three, to provide all the buying power that people need, even by inflation. Number four, to maintain the national income at any optimum level and to see that it's properly distributed. Number five, to provide for the poor, the old, and unemployed, if there are any unemployed. Six, necessarily, therefore, to prevent deflation, which is to say that it undertakes to see that the price of the boom shall never be paid. Once again, does any of this sound familiar? Have we experienced any of this? Perhaps, oh, I don't know, in the last few years, or for those of you that are old enough to remember, oh, I don't know, 2008, 2000, there's been a number of things that come around and we just don't seem to learn from the mistakes. We trust the experts. We trust the science. Again, does any of this sound familiar? All right, the third section, we're going to start again with the first page here. Rise of Empire. This was written in 1952, mind you. We have crossed the boundary that lies between Republic and Empire. If you ask when, the answer is that you cannot make a a single stroke between day and night. The precise moment does not matter. There was no painted sign to say you are now entering Imperium, yet it was the very old road and the voice of history that was saying, whether you know it or not, the act of crossing may be irreversible. And now, not far ahead, is a sign that reads, no U-turns. If you say there were no frightening omens, that is true. The political foundations did not quake. The graves of the fathers did not fly open. The Constitution did not tear itself up. If you say people did not will it, that is also true. But if you say, therefore, it has not happened, then you have have been so long bemused by words that your mind does not believe what the eye can see. Even as in the jungle, the terrified primitive, upon meeting the lion, importuned magic by saying to himself, he is not there. 
that a republic may vanish is an elementary school book fact. That's scary, isn't it? Once again, this should sound familiar. We've heard these things before. There's really nothing new here. All right. Now we're going to go on to the, again, last page here, part six, if you will. Again, I want to give you a little taste. And I got to, I got to say the language here (laughs) is a bit of a challenge for a modern reader. It's interesting to me that in 70 years, which is 20 more years than I've been alive, our vocabulary has deteriorated to such a point that even I occasionally have to pause and figure out what it is that he's saying here. Now, yes, I'm going to mispronounce words all day long because for whatever reason, that is a challenge. Perhaps it's the fact that I never had phonics in school, but I will tell you that I truly enjoy the words, especially when they are put together in such a way as to tell a vivid story of what's going on, I guess, which is why I enjoy novels and they don't even have to be well-written novels, just novels that I can follow the story and blitz through. And I often find that nonfiction writing is just dry and boring. This guy is neither dry nor boring. So part six, the positions in the lost terrain that have been named are vital. To serve the Republic, they must all be stormed and captured. Others are important, but if these are taken, the others can wait. But there's still one more, the last, the highest of them all. As you approach it, you must understand the, the, ser, the serpent's sardonic grin. The slopes are steep and barren. No enemy is visible. The enemy is in yourself. For this may be named the peak of fortitude. What you have to face is the cost of saving the Republic may be extremely high. It could be relatively as high as the cost of setting it up in the first place, 175 years ago, or if you prefer 225, or actually it's 245 at this point. Um, When love of political liberty was a mighty passion and the people were willing to die for it. When the economy has been for a long time moving by jet propulsion, the higher, the faster on the fuel of perpetual war and planned inflation, a time comes when you have to choose whether to go on and on and dissolve into the stratosphere or decelerate. But deceleration will cause terrific shock. Who will say now? Who is willing to face the grim and dangerous realities of deflation and depression? When Moses had brought his people near the promised land, he sent out scouts to explore it. They returned with the rapturous words of its beauties and fruits, whereupon the people were shrill with joy until the scouts said, The only thing is, the land is inhabited by very fierce men. Moses said, Come, let us fall upon them and take the land. It is ours from the Lord. At that, the people turned bitterly on Moses and said, What a prophet you turned out to be. So the land is ours if we can take it. We need no prophet to tell us that. No doubt the people know they can have the Republic back if they want it enough to fight for it and to pay the price. The only point is that no leader has yet appeared with courage to make them choose. Interesting. So the last section of part three of this book just brought about the very question and a proposed answer that quite frankly I'd forgotten was in there and I didn't see it coming. 
Oh, I've talked about it on my podcast many, many times. I've reminded everybody that there is a cost. The liberty is not free. So the question is, what are you willing to do to retake your liberty? What are you willing to sacrifice or potentially give up for the cause of liberty? Now, I can tell you, the folks over at TNM, they want to peacefully declare independence from the United States. Yet people in our very own state of Texas, they just find excuses. They complain. They say it can't be done. They're not even willing to face a court challenge. These people are not defenders of liberty. These people don't care about our independence. These people are not worthy of our time, unfortunately. Then there are others still that declare that they're willing to give their life. They're they're willing to go to battle right now. I think some of that's just blowhardism. I I think some of that's uh, eagerness that's not well thought out. I would suggest to you that before you go into battle, you need to know your enemy as well as you know yourself. That's nothing unique or new to me. That's a variation on what Sun Tzu teaches, right? You have to go in your battles knowing your enemy as well as yourself, and you have to think ahead of time. You have to decide what are the tactics involved? What are the logistics necessary in order to make this successful? And I got to tell you, there's other options. There's different things that could be done to protect liberty or to reassert our independence. But if you're not willing to at least take the time of intellectual thought process and put it into this, you're never, ever going to be successful. And how is it that 80 years have gone by and we've only progressed worse? There's a much smaller portion of the general public that's pushing back. There's a much smaller portion of the general public that even cares enough about individual liberty to show up and vote. And despite whatever my misgivings are of the Libertarian Party as a whole, as an operational force, they can only mount maybe 3% of the voting public. Now, I'd imagine a good number of those people actually show up and vote Republican. I would have counted myself among them. Because they feel like they have no other choice or no other option. And, you know, the Republican Party is less hostile to individual liberty than the Democrat Party. But then again, I know there's probably some that vote for the Democrat Party because they see some of the things the Democrats are doing as being more important than some of the things they agree with the Republicans on. So maybe, just maybe, the libertarians, the the people that actually care for individual liberty, might make up 10% of the population. And that's being extremely generous. But when you talk to them, how many of them are willing to give up their laptop, their cell phone, their lattes, their peaceful evenings? I would imagine, and and these are the people that are considered radicals and that are outside the normal bounds of civil society. I would imagine the vast majority of them are not willing to give up those things to actually fix the problem. And the same thing infects the right wing, right? Whether it's the alt-right, the nationalists, the Christian nationalists, whatever whatever pejorative they're going to throw at myself or anyone else, a good number of us are like, well, you know, 
if I'm going to give this stuff up, I need to see that there's a opportunity to win. That we have to strike at the right time. We have to make an educated guess. We have to plot these things out. We have to see, is there an opportunity to fix this? And like you said, in the very first article here, we might've already passed the sign that said, no, U-turn. There is no peaceable resolution at this point. We've gone from Republic and we can't go back. Now, perhaps we can peacefully uh, declare our independence and get a Republic of Texas and maybe we'll be marginally better. But until we actually fix the underlying problem, that which I outlined in, I guess, part two, where I went through the six or seven things that the government's going to do for us. And until we remove those things, we're not going to actually solve the problem. Once again, this guy wrote about this. Before 1954. 1954 was the last book. The 50th anniversary of this book was in... uh, 2003, and I think I might have gotten this book about 2011, maybe 2012, and it was on sale. But again, these ideas, these correct deductions of what we're seeing are barely even discussed. When we talk about voter education, we talk about an educated public, if they don't know about these things... How are they possibly going to be prepared for the independent nation that we want to get? The respecter of individual freedoms and liberties that we desire. How's that ever going to happen if people don't know how to do these things? If they don't understand the motives behind them? I would suggest to you that we've got our work cut out for us. I would suggest to you that we should spend a whole lot more time educating our children our grandchildren, and quite frankly, other members of our families. They need to know about these things. They need to understand what's going on. And failure to do that will only lead to the continued descent into empire. And with that, I want to uh, remind everybody the, the name or the title in the book is Ex America by Garrett Garrett. That's G-A-R-E-T, G-A-R. R-E-T-T. So two R's, two T's on the second name. The 50th anniversary edition is what I have put forth courtesy of Caxton Press and the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And I know there's a great number of people that are probably listening to me right now and feeling all icky because this guy's a libertarian. But this guy was a libertarian before libertarian even existed. So Look, do yourself a favor. You need to understand that there was a whole counterculture pushing back against government overreach back in the time of the Depression, the Great. And as they push forward with their Great Reset, we're not going to see anything new there either. But if you don't know what it is, you can't fight back against it. And with that, this was According to Callus. I will see you on the other side. But before I go, let me just remind you one last time. Share share, share, subscribe, like, comment, subscribe, like, comment. And if you're feeling particularly motivated, you can go in and rate this podcast.
We're growing. I need your help. We can make a difference. Even if it's just a tiny little ripple in the pond that makes up Texas politics, every little bit makes a difference. So join me here. Join me there. Let's get our work done. Oh, and by the way, this will be followed by a quick commercial by a good friend of mine. And if you could use his services, I strongly suggest you give him a call. And no, I'm not charging him for this ad. It's just a solid one brother to another brother. Thank you and have a good night. Canceled by the big tech mafia, but inadvertently profiting from owning their stocks in a mutual fund or ETF. At Two Pillars, they believe that censorship is a form of violence and a business practice that does not promote human flourishing. In many cases, through their investigative screening process, they can help you divest from companies that are denying your God-given inalienable right to speak freely. Hey, patriots, Two Pillars believes it's time for conservatives to align their values and investments. Two Pillars is your place for impact investing in the parallel economy. Find out what's in your investment portfolio with a complimentary portfolio review. Contact them today to learn more. Call toll-free at 833-377-0051 or send an email to info at twopillarsam.com. That's info at T-W-O-pillarsam.com. Get started today. Advisory services are offered through Jacob and Boaz Asset Management, LLC, doing business as Two Pillars Asset Management or Two Pillars. A registered investment advisor in the states of Texas and California. Two Pillars is not endorsed by any government agency and is not engaged in the practice of law or tax advice.